Good morning. Uh, my name is uh, Larry Corbin. On behalf of our president, John Podesta, my colleagues in the National Security Program, I'd like to welcome you to this uh, discussion uh, about the financial costs of the war in Iraq. And as you know, the war is entering its sixth year now. And last week, we had a program talked about the military uh, aspects of it. Today, we want to talk about the financial uh, aspects of it. And I couldn't think of two better people to uh, uh, deal with that uh, subject. On my left is uh, <clears throat> Linda Bilmes, who has, along with Joe Stieglitz, uh, turned this town upside down and gotten the administration to go to general quarters to talk about the estimates that they've given about the, uh, the current and, and, and uh, future costs of the war. And Linda certainly brings a terrific background to that. Uh, she's held a number of senior positions in government, including Assistant Secretary and Chief Financial Officer of the U.S. Uh, Department of Commerce, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Administration, and U.S. Representative to several high-ranking uh, Currently, she's a full-time uh, faculty member at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University, where she teaches a, a number of uh, courses. She also conducts the Harvard Institute of Politics budgeting workshops for newly elected mayors and members of uh, a Congress. I can't wait till the next one uh, after the election and get them up there and talk about all of these, uh, all of these costs. She's written extensively on this, and uh, you see her book out there, the, <clears throat> the Economic Costs of the Iraq War and Appraisal, three years after the beginning of the conflict, which she has done with uh, uh, Joe Stieglitz. And of course, I don't know where you find time to do this. She's got another book coming out here in June 2008 called The People Factor, Strengthening America by Investing in Public Service. She's co-authored with uh, Scott, uh, Scott Gould. Uh, on my right, uh, I have uh, Steve Koziak. And when you want to know anything about the defense budget, what's in, what shouldn't be in there, what will be in there, and what the long-term costs, you really need to turn uh, to Steve, who's vice president of budget studies at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary uh, uh, assessments. We've got some, his testimony before the Congress and some of his articles <coughs> out there. But every time that when the, the budget comes out, the defense budget comes out, if you want to know anything, you turn to uh, the analysis of uh, CSBA and, uh, and, and, and Steve. And he's cited uh, in, a, in a number of uh, uh, publications uh, uh, when it comes to you know what is correct in defense and what's not. So. We have, I think, a terrific panel. And what we're going to do this morning is Linda will talk, not, she will mention the fact of what uh, the costs in the Department of Defense are, but then speak about the other areas. And then Steve will mention, uh, focus primarily on what the cost of the war is for the Department of Defense, the supplementals, and uh, what, uh, what it will cost for them to kind of dig out of the hole that they've been put into by the war. So Linda, thank you very much for coming. We look forward to your comments. Thank you, Larry. <coughs> um, I, you know, I thought maybe I would just start by telling you the background of, uh, of this book and this piece of research. Uh, I teach, uh, as Larry said, at the Kennedy School at Harvard, and I teach budgeting and accounting. And about three years ago, uh, in my advanced accounting class, I was teaching a group of students, and we were uh, discussing the differences between cash accounting and accrual-based accounting. Uh, cash accounting is basically uh, the accounting used by very tiny businesses where, say, if you buy a car uh, and you pay $5,000 for it up front, you, you essentially put on your books the $5,000, but not the $15,000 that you still owe. 
accrual accounting, which is required by all businesses larger than a corner grocery store, is where you have to put the deferred liability of the 15000 that you still owe uh, on the books. And my student said to me, well, if we looked at the Iraq war from this perspective, or you know, long-term cost, you know, what would it cost? Uh, and that actually, you know, I mean, I started off then just uh, trying to find out uh, how much the war actually cost. And uh, that led to uh, a, um, an op-ed that I wrote in the New York Times that was published in the summer of 2005. Uh, at that point, I teamed up with Joe Stiglitz to look at the broader economic costs, and we published, uh, as you know, a paper in January 2006, which looked at the economic cost of the war, uh, which at that time we had estimated would fall between one and, and two uh, trillion. Um, and uh, after that, even though we had this huge number, uh, a number of veterans groups, in fact, all of the major veterans groups, uh, contacted me and said, uh, you know, your number is actually far too low for veterans because uh, you have used uh, a number of injuries, which is too small. You have not considered a, a number of veterans programs, which also exist. And I said, well, I don't have all of that information. And the veterans group said, well, we will help you. We will use the Freedom of Information Act for you to help you get access to this information. Uh, the result of that was a, another year, uh, year in which I spent um, basically working with veterans groups, working in veterans hospitals, working with a large number of doctors. Uh, around the country, neurosurgeons and brain injury specialists, uh, in order to write a paper that was published in January 07 on the long-term cost of treating uh, veterans uh, returning from the wars. Uh, as you know, we, um, we uh, have now published a book which basically brings these two things together. And I just want to emphasize that the reason that we wrote this book, uh, well, there were two reasons, really. First of all, to try and call attention to the full range of costs to the full scale of costs uh, of the uh, Iraq conflict. And secondly, to draw attention to how our veterans have been shortchanged uh, and to some of the things that we can do to actually fix the, uh, the, the really serious problems that, are, uh, that veterans returning from the wars are running into. So um, we have a, a wide range of um, people here this morning with you know, different backgrounds, so I'm going to make a kind of a general, a few uh, overall general comments here, and, and certainly happy to take detailed questions. Uh, first of all, um, I'd just like to review the, the scale of the conflict to date. Uh, there have been 1.7 million troops who have been deployed. More than 35 percent of them have served uh, two or three or four tours of duties. The average tour uh, is 15 months long, so we have a number of young men and women who have been uh, deployed for, for 20, 30, even 40 months. Uh, as we know, uh, we have, um, uh, there have been 4,000 of our troops uh, killed in Iraq, uh, another uh, 500 killed in Afghanistan, uh, about 1,200 contractors. About 70,000 of our troops have been wounded or injured or contracted diseases serious enough to uh, require medical evacuation. And one point I want to stress is that the Pentagon keeps two sets of books, one set of books for those who are wounded in combat and another for those who are wounded uh, in other ways, uh, injured uh, or contract serious diseases that require medical evacuation. 
but the line between wounded in combat and non-combat is somewhat arbitrary. For example, if you are a uh, soldier who is traveling at night, uh, being transported in a, in a vehicle or a helicopter, and that crashes, uh, you are probably at, uh, traveling at night because it's not safe to travel during the day. Uh, but that would be counted as a non-combat injury. Uh, similarly, if you are in a, a large convoy and you are at the back of the convoy and you hit uh, another vehicle uh, because the vehicle at the front of the convoy hits um, an IED, the, if you are injured in the vehicle at the front that hits the IED, that's a, that's a combat casualty. If you were at the back of the convoy and you hit the truck in front of you, that very well likely would not be a combat injury. So this is a somewhat arbitrary distinction. And it's certainly um, something that the veterans uh, organizations have, have sensitized us to. Obviously, the government foots the bill uh, regardless of how you are injured. Um, for comparison's sake, one of the things we did in this book was to try and understand how does the rate of non-combat injury compare with previous, uh, with, uh, with peacetime. In other words, how many of these non-combat injuries are specifically related to the war. We went back and looked five years uh, before the war to look at the rate of non-combat uh, fatalities and injuries, and we found that it is 60% higher now. Um, the uh, the 70,000 um, who I mentioned who are wounded or injured, I mean, that is uh, a small subset, however, of the larger number of uh, returning troops who have been seeking medical care from VA hospitals and clinics around the country. Of the uh, close to 800,000 who have been discharged so far, about 300,000 have to date been treated uh, in the VA uh, hospitals and clinics, including 120,000 for mental health conditions with, of those, 68,000 uh, diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. And next year, the VA expects to treat uh, another 333,000 uh, returning veterans. Many of these veterans have already applied for disability compensation. Uh, there have already been 228,000 uh, applications filed. So far, uh, the claims that have been processed, 90% of them, or a little beyond 90%, are being approved. Um, and I, I basically am giving you all of these statistics because they lay the foundation for the enormous long-term financial cost. I mean, the financial cost is directly related to the uh, very high uh, toll of the war. Um, the wars, uh, as we are very familiar with in the newspapers, you know, have cost the, the federal government about $600 billion uh, to date. Um, that amounts to about $21,000 per Iraqi. Um, but that is just the, spent, the money that is spent on combat operations uh, to keep our troops in the field. And this includes things like supplementary combat pay, transportation, uh, medical care at the front lines, which is very expensive, the cost of uh, repairing and maintaining equipment to the extent it is repaired and maintained, uh, fuel, um, paying the, the 100,000 contractors who we employ to support the war effort, and the cost of paying full-time wages to reservists and National Guards who, if they were not uh, uh, if they were not in Iraq, would only be paid uh, for one weekend a month. 
all of those costs uh, are, are currently running at the, the burn rate just in Iraq of $12 uh, billion a month. Um, there are several major costs that this uh, $400, that this $600 billion ignores. Um, first of all, there is additional spending that is, that is hidden uh, in the rest of government, in, including in the defense uh, department budget, the, the social security budget, the department of labor budget, the department of energy budget. And, I mean, for example, in the defense budget, this would include uh, enlistment bonuses and re-enlistment bonuses and increased spending on recruiting and advertising and increased pay increases that are over and above the expected uh, pay increases, increased spending for uh, health care in the military. And then um, there are, of course, many hidden costs that we have not counted, for example, the, uh, the fact that the Halliburton subsidiary KBR, the largest uh, contractor in Iraq, uh, as we have seen recently, has been avoiding, evading, paying hundreds of millions of dollars every year in Social Security and Medicare taxes by employing its workers through shell companies in the Cayman Islands. Uh, and that not only, of course, gives uh, Halliburton uh, a leg up in terms of the competitive bidding process, but um, it, it, it essentially uh, uh, weakens our Social Security and Medicare system, which are already uh, in crisis um, over the long term. And it's a cost in terms of reduced revenue uh, into the United States, which we have not counted. Um, secondly, there are the long-term costs um, that we are really required to pay even if we were to pull out of Iraq tomorrow. And these include veterans' medical care, veterans' disability compensation, uh, replacing military equipment and weaponry and, and restoring the armed forces to their pre-war strength. Now, I won't um, talk about the, uh, the military uh, reset cost because Steve um, will address that topic, but let me just talk about the, um, the uh, medical care and compensation costs for veterans for a minute. Um, the cost of caring for our injured is much higher than in previous wars because the survivor rate is much higher in this war. Uh, in Vietnam and in Korea, the survivor rate was uh, about 2.5 injuries per fatality. In the current war, if you, the, the number of uh, woundings in combat per fatality is 7 to 1, and if you count the non-combat injuries and serious diseases, it's 15 to 1. Um, many of those injured would never have survived in previous wars, which is, of course, a tribute to uh, to the, uh, those surgeons and those of you who are familiar with this, and I have spent a lot of time uh, with, with the uh, doctors at, at Langstel Hospital in Germany, uh, it, it is incredible what we do now. I mean, people who are, are horribly wounded are essentially open, packed in ice and shipped off within 18 hours to Langstel where uh, they are given an unbelievable amount of care during the first week. Um, and this is a, you know, it's a remarkable accomplishment. But of course, there are long-term costs of caring for the uh, severely wounded and long-term costs of, of caring for the not so severely wounded. Um, the current uh, um, Veterans Department is uh, overwhelmed by the demand for care. Um, in the medical side, uh, it is, of course, a nationwide system with thousands of hospitals and clinics. There are some 
facilities that are doing fine. There are some facilities that are uh, having enormous amount of challenge meeting the demand, particularly in areas for which there is much demand, such as in mental health care, in, in PTSD, in traumatic brain injury, in uh, audio, uh, there's enormous amount of hearing loss um, as a result of the explosive devices in this war. And if you uh, imagine trying to hire a very experienced psychiatric triage nurse in, uh, you know, in some parts of the country for a fairly low uh, government salary, you can imagine how difficult this is. So they are really struggling. The disability benefits uh, are a cost that goes on for decades. After the Spanish-American War, uh, the, the peak year for paying um, disability compensation was 50 years later. The peak year for paying World War II disability compensation was in 1993. Uh, Vietnam has nowhere near peaked um, yet. We pay over $20 billion a year in compensation for Vietnam veterans. And even in the first Gulf War, uh, which of course um, was a, a short war that lasted for a few weeks, 44% uh, of the troops who fought in the first Gulf War of 1991 uh, filed for disability compensation, 39% uh, of those troops now receive it, and we pay $4.3 billion per year now, and it goes up every year, of course, in disability compensation costs uh, for the first Gulf War. So in this war, um, if we, and we try to be very conservative in the book, to assume that we would have just the same number of disability claims as we had in the first Gulf War. If we just assume that, we can expect to have over 700,000 veterans from this war uh, receiving disability compensation for the rest of their lives. Um, I will not, uh, I, I will defer to Steve to talk about the military reset costs. I just want to point out that this is, there are a number of costs associated with military reset, both on the equipment side and on the personnel side. Another major cost that we have ignored um, in the $600 billion figure is the cost of paying interest on the debt. Uh, we have borrowed now all of the money to pay for the war. As you're familiar, we have, bar we have, uh, we have paid for the war uh, almost entirely through emergency supplemental appropriations. These are appropriations that, that circumvent the normal budget caps they circumvent the normal checks and balances in the budget process. They circumvent the ability of both parties' budget experts in Congress uh, to really look at the numbers. And it's almost inevitable with this kind of irresponsible, and I would say bipartisanly irresponsible, uh, spending um, mechanism that we will see the kind of profiteering and corruption and cost overruns and, as the Pentagon uh, puts it, uh, lost visibility on billions of dollars that uh, has been a consequence of this war. Um, the interest cost goes, of course, um, uh, de is deferred. It, uh, I see a number of young people here, and, and you uh, will be you know, paying that interest. This is the first war ever in U.S. history where we have cut taxes and uh, raised spending at the time that we went to war. This is also the first war since the Revolutionary War uh, where we have borrowed uh, from overseas to pay for the war. You recall that during the Revolutionary War, the colonies borrowed from France. Uh, we have borrowed from China and the Middle East and so forth uh, to pay for this war. And we have at least added uh, 
$800 billion onto our national debt. All of these costs uh, still leave out the economic costs. Uh, those are costs that we feel, but the government doesn't pay. And these fall into two categories, um, the social costs uh, and the macroeconomic costs. Social costs are things like the fact that uh, for those who come home with a disability, in 20% of cases, a parent or a spouse has to quit their job to become a full-time caretaker. There is the actual economic loss of the uh, young people who have been killed in the war, the lost contribution to the economy. Now, the way that the military calculates on its books, um, and which is a, a topic I, I won't talk about today, but how the military keeps its books is a, a, another topic worthy of another uh, panel. Um, but the military calculates um, the cost at $500,000 per life lost. That's the cost of the insurance and the death gratuity. If you look at the way civilian agencies uh, essentially look at the cost of a life, if they're thinking about environmental regulation or health regulations or food and safety regulations, uh, they, they estimate it at about $7 million. Um, so we have looked at, that's a, you know, kind of statistical and accounting way of estimating the economic value of a life, which seems crass um, in some respects, but on the other hand, it seems even more crass to ignore the fact that we have lost uh, the contribution of these young people. Finally, uh, to the macroeconomic costs, um, the point that we make uh, in the book repeatedly is that this war contributes to the weakening of our economy. Uh, the economy is, is clearly um, weakening, and this is for a number of reasons. It's partly because of the way we have paid for this war by adding so much uh, uh, deficit um, spending to and, and money onto our debt. It's partly because oil prices have increased. Now, oil prices, it's hard to even remember this, but they were $25 a barrel at the time we invaded Iraq. Uh, Oil prices started to rise immediately following the, uh, the war. If you go back to the time of the war, of the invasion, the futures markets, which had already predicted the increase uh, in demand from China and India and so forth, expected that the price would stay at $25 a barrel for the next decade. Uh, why? Because they expected that supply would increase to meet demand. And the Iraq uh, war and the instability related to the war changed that equation. It basically sort of changed the equation. It, um, we have, in our book, we have been conservative. We have only attributed between $5 and $10 of the $85 uh, oil price increase specifically to the war. But clearly, the war was one of the factors that precipitated the pressure uh, on oil prices. Of course, rising oil prices transfer money directly out of consumers' hands into the hands of uh, oil um, producers uh, such as Venezuela, Middle Eastern countries, and so forth. Um, and finally, um, the money that we have actually been spending in Iraq has not been stimulating the economy. Much of it has been literally going into the ground. Much of it has been going into the hands of contractors who are typically from the Philippines or Nepal or somewhere who are doing the 
everyday work of cooking meals and driving trucks and moving people around and doing the laundry and doing all those things that sustain a huge uh, occupying force in the field. None of that money is money that comes back to us. Um, so I think I will um, stop, it, stop it there. I've probably gone way over my time. Uh, thank you. The perspective, Steve, focus on the Pentagon and the military and, and, and the cost to them currently and in the future. Okay, uh, thank you. Um, and I, I want to emphasize here that I really am just talking about Department of Defense uh, and, and not, uh, not the other uh, programs that uh, Linda has talked about, especially VA benefits, which are, are really critical for future costs. Uh, I also want, want to just uh, say a few words about their book, which I finally uh, uh, did actually read. And um, I think they really already be commended for the effort they uh, made. Uh, not just, I mean, it's, the number is, of course, interesting. Uh, and I'm not an economist, so I can't uh, comment on a lot of the, the stuff they did. But just in terms of the methodology and looking at all the different kinds of costs, uh, it's really, I think, a fascinating kind of kind of read. And as a person who's been a budget analyst for several decades now, it's kind of uh, humbling and uh, overwhelming. But it's it is a real contribution, I think, just in terms of how you should think about this uh, war and costs, and also um, uh, looking at not just the cost of this war, but when you think about potential future conflicts. Uh, I, so I, I, I think it's uh, uh, really uh, a real contribution. Uh, I wanted to be able to talk about something where I thought I could contribute something this morning because uh, the book covers so much. So uh, what I decided to do was to focus on what I think are three key questions uh, for at least for the Department of Defense, questions that I get a lot at least. Uh, one is, uh, in terms of a reset, is, is in terms of the Department of Defense, is reset being adequately funded? Is our ability to sort of recover once we're out of Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, is that being adequately funded? Uh, second question is, uh, is there money in the supplementals and these emergency supplementals that really is for long-term force structure readiness and modernization requirements? Really, kind of stuff that probably belongs in the base budget. If it's if it uh, if it has merit, if it belongs at all, it should really be in the base budget, not really directly related to the war. It, is there uh, is there money there? The Army uh, and the other services say there there clearly is. Uh, and then thirdly, to the extent that there is money in the in the uh, war-related supplementals, that really is more uh, focus on long-term readiness, modernization, and force structure requirements. Uh, what are the implications for the, our long-term base budget, our budget exclusive of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, to adjust for that, uh, uh, that, that funding? Uh, first question, is reset being adequately funded? And again, here emphasis I'm talking about really direct Department of Defense costs. In 2006, the Army estimated that they needed to get about $13 billion a year to fund replacement, uh, to replace and repair equipment damaged and destroyed in Iraq and Afghanistan. And that's uh, pretty much into, into 2007, that was what their estimate was as well. Uh, the Marine Corps, if you had the Marine Corps and the other services, it gets to something like on the order of $20 billion a year uh, uh, to uh, uh, need on an ongoing basis. And then once we're out of Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, they argue that we'd, they'd need to get that level of funding for another uh, two years or so after that to uh, fully restore their forces. The, uh, in the last several years, the amount of money that has been provided for reset and related to reset in these emergency supplementals has grown uh, really quite uh, uh, dramatically. In 2005, it was about $13 billion for all of the services for, uh, this is procurement funding. Um, th so that's what, what, buying new weapon systems, basically. The 2006 supplemental included about $15 billion. The 2007 supplemental included about uh, $25 billion. And this is, this is Army procurement alone. Um, and the, uh, the um, uh, 2008 supplemental included about $46 billion in Army procurement. 
Uh, if you add all that together, you look over the past eight years, the Army will have received about $100 billion in procurement funding over the past eight years. Uh, and the other services you add in, the other services is about $40 billion more. So a total of about $140 billion in procurement funding will have been provided through these emergency supplementals over the past eight years. Uh, by comparison, the Congressional Budget Office, which is really the only organization that I know of who's, who's really done a comprehensive analysis of this, they've done a couple of studies on it now, uh, estimated that the total value of all the Army's equipment in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, all the major equipment including uh, trucks and ground combat vehicles and helicopters was about $30 billion. Uh, and if you include uh, minor equipment, uh, it gets you up to maybe $40 billion. So the Army will have been provided about $100 billion. The total value of the equipment there is about $40 billion. Without going into uh, any more in-depth analysis, I, I think that suggests that they've been given quite a bit of money uh, in this area. And, and it's not clear that this is an area that has not been adequately funded. And in fact, it may have been, um, I won't say it's been excessively funded, but um, just, let's just leave it at that, that it, it seems like it's been adequately funded. The, uh, that said, I want to be clear, I'm not saying that the Army and the other services don't face any re reset issues, significant reset issues. I think they clearly do. One of the problems is that no matter how much money you provide, there's a, l a limited ability, a capacity issue for getting stuff out of overhaul and back into the field or off the assembly line and out into the field. So, uh, so that despite the fact that we provided all this money for, uh, for reset and for procurement, uh, the Army is still facing serious readiness problems. I think uh, the, um, all of the units, I think, uh, and someone correct me if I'm wrong, I think all of the units uh, based in the U.S. Are, have, um, I don't think any of them have even uh, C1, have C1 or even C2 uh, readiness status. So it's clearly affected readiness, and it will be some years before uh, uh, we get our readiness levels back up. But in terms of the amount of money that has been provided in this area, it seems adequate. Uh, in terms of... Uh, uh, recovering as well, there is the the personnel aspect, which again will take some time to get uh, to get through. The army, in particular, and the other services have, have done quite well in terms of recruitment and retention, in terms of both quantity and quality. The army has had problems. The um, especially in 2006 and 2007, the quality of recruits has has uh, declined. Uh, the number of uh, uh, personnel, new recruits, getting uh, waivers for health health uh, problems or uh, moral waivers for past uh, uh, involvement in, in, in crimes, for example, uh, has increased. There's also an officer shortage in the Army. Um, they've had some, some uh, problems with, uh, with, uh, with retention, although sort of more in selected uh, areas rather than overall, I think. Uh, but there, there clearly has been some uh, significant strain on the Army in terms of personnel and personnel quality. And this is something that could take decades to work its way through the system. So that's a, that's a real, real problem, very serious problem, potentially a serious problem at least. Um, but again, I'm not sure this is especially, a, although there are budgetary aspects of this, I think if you're looking at it in terms of a recovery sort of cost, uh, I think once we're out of uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, to the extent we get out of Iraq and Afghanistan, I think that will help with uh, uh, recruitment and retention in the Army. So I'm not sure that that's primarily a budgetary uh, problem either. Uh, okay, so that was the first question. Uh, are we providing adequately for reset? Second question, is there stuff in the supplementals that's not closely uh, or directly related to actually being at war in Iraq and Afghanistan? Stuff that really probably belongs, if it belongs at all, belongs in the base budget because it's really for long-term uh, force structure and, and readiness and modernization requirements. I think the, the answer is yes. I mean, I think that's large part of the explanation for why We've been providing so much money for uh, what the Army has been calling reset, which I think goes beyond reset. Uh, I think there's a significant amount of the money that is really more for modernizing and transforming the Army than, uh, than simply for replacing and repairing equipment. 
It's hard to say how much money uh, that is. The Congressional Budget Office, in a study they did recently, suggested that um, something like 40% of the funding in the, uh, uh, for, for reset was actually related to upgrading equipment, modernizing equipment, uh, buying equipment where we had shortages in the past. Uh, and these may all be very good things to spend money on. I mean, that's not, that's not what I'm, um, I'm trying to get at here. I mean, it, it's a question of where the funding is provided and what, what, what kind of ultimate contribution it makes to not just our war effort, but to our long-term uh, long requirements. If you look at the total amount of money that was provided, for example, in 2008 or requested in 2008 for reset, it was about $42 billion uh, compared to CBO. Uh, and other estimates that suggest, or e any even uh, services estimates that suggest that the level required is maybe in, the, in something in the $20 billion ballpark. Uh, if you look at procurement funding, and there's overlap between procurement and, and reset, um, but they're not the same categories. Total, total procurement, all of the services in the 2008 supplemental was about $64 billion compared to arguably something closer to a $20 billion, um, uh, $20 billion requirement. So the difference here is on the order of $20 to $40 billion. Uh, that's just a, a guess as to sort of the magnitude you might be dealing with here in terms of the amount of money that is being provided in the supplementals, uh, especially in the most recent supplementals, uh, that is um, really more related to long-term requirements than directly related to uh, wear and tear and other war-related requirements. If that's true, um, to the extent that that is true, that there's stuff in the, in the uh, these supplementals that is really more directly related to long-term requirements, um, what does that mean for our long-term budgetary requirements? How much money, uh, if any money, has to be shifted or should be shifted if we decide that in the future, well, if we get out of Iraq and Afghanistan and, and don't have supplementals for, to cover uh, military operations, or we decide in the future we really want to limit DOD supplementals to literally just covering the costs directly related to the war, as we did in the first couple of years, uh, what are the implications for the base budget, DOD's budget exclusive of war costs? What are the implications over the long term? Well, assuming that there's 20 to $40 billion uh, in the uh, supplemental, you see, oh, eight supplemental that's more related to base budget requirements. Uh, that might suggest that you need to increase the B DOD's base budget, which this year will be about $518 billion uh, by 20 to $40 billion. So get up to the area of 540 to $560 billion uh, over, the, over the next few years and over the long term. And, and then in addition to that, you'd need any money to cover costs directly related to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, do we need to do that? Well, I think it depends. If, if the services can meet their cost goals for modernization programs and operations and support costs, things like personnel, healthcare costs, and things like that, I think analysis by the Congressional Budget Office and others suggests that, no, you don't need to add that much money. Uh, I mean, their, their analysis suggests that if, if they can meet those cost goals, they should be able to execute the current long-term defense plan uh, within the budget levels that are currently projected for the base budget, which is essentially staying flat where we are today, in, in real terms at least. Um, so you don't need to add this money. That would be the, the answer if you think they're going to be able to meet their cost goals. If you don't think they're going to be able to meet their cost goals, and history suggests that, in fact, they won't be able to, that new weapon systems will cost more than anticipated, that uh, health care costs will rise more than anticipated, and other costs will grow more than anticipated, uh, then you are facing a, a potentially significant shortfall over the next five years and beyond. Over the next five years, it could be in the order of $100 billion total, not in one year, but uh, over that period, uh, and perhaps as much as $50 billion a year or more over the long term. So there is potentially a, a, a serious problem there. And that, I think, is why you hear the Army, and, and especially the Army, but the other services to some extent saying that you need to shift money. Uh, th I mean, they, they agree that there's money in the, in the supplemental that is really for base budget requirements, and they argue that that money needs to be shifted into the, uh, out of the supplementals into the base budget and 
provide them with uh, substantially additional uh, substantial additional resources over the long term relative to what is currently projected. Um, whether that, in fact, is what it, it means, I think, is, is debatable. I think the, what it comes down to is uh, that uh, you have to decide what, uh, you know, whether these, you know, the question comes down to is, it, is this a problem of over-programming or underfunding? Is it that there's too little money there, or is it that we're buying uh, more systems than we need? And that has been the perennial question uh, going back decades now. Uh, whenever you look out into the future, Department of Defense, invariably has sort of this plans funding mismatch. And uh, you always have to confront, and the next administration will have to confront the question of how much of that uh, do we need to make up by, by adding additional money, and how much of that do we, um, do we need, can we perhaps uh, garner savings instead by cutting back on some of these programs. The, um, but, but what's pushing these long-term costs, I guess the last point I'd, I'd make or try to emphasize, what's pushing these long-term costs for the, the departments is really the cost of their long-term plans. It's not the cost of the war. Um, the reason, to the extent that the services may need uh, uh, additional money uh, in the out years, uh, it's really being driven by the same things that have driven it in the past, things like cost growth in weapon systems and uh, cost growth in healthcare costs and things like that, that are, for the most part, not, uh, not I would argue, tied to the war. Uh, and I think it's important that, I mean, I guess as a, as a very last point, I think it's important to understand the sort of the distinction or try to make a distinction between war-related costs and base budget requirements. Uh, and it's hard to do that nowadays because the administration and Congress to some extent have been very sloppy over the past five years in sort of allocating funding and how we've funded these wars. So it's, very, it's, it's harder than it should be to tell now how much is really war-related and how much is related to long-term uh, plans. But I think it's important to try to conceptually to make that distinction because they are very different animals. The, uh, the, uh, uh, they're related, but they're different animals. And, and th there's a lot of things in the long-term plan that seem to have very little to do with fighting the war in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, or fighting those kinds of wars in the future. So um, I think it's, it's more than of academic interest to try to make this distinction. Thank you very much. Lynn, do you have any comments on Joe's and, uh, I mean, on Steve? Uh, on uh, Steve's com uh, 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 comments, and Steve, do you have any comments on Linda's before we open it up to the uh, floor? Um, <clears throat> well, I'd like to pick up on actually one, you know, Steve's last comment about the sloppiness uh, of the of um, the way that the wars have been financed, because I think that you know one of the critical issues that we tried to raise in the book, and that I think we should all you know sort of be focusing on here in Washington, is that. Um, and certainly a challenge in, write, in writing the book and a challenge for, for everyone who has tried to understand what's going on in terms of the war cost, whether it's the CBO or the Congressional Research Service or GAO or others, has been the sloppiness of the way that this has uh, been funded. Now, um, in, in, um, in theory, we have a budget process which is fairly robust um, within the Pentagon in which there is a, a, a lot of, you know, effort from sort of the bottom up and, you know, years spent on developing uh, uh, plans and, and, you know, costings uh, for those plans. The, the sort of five years of supplemental have essentially made a mockery of, you know, of that uh, entire planning process. You have um, a vehicle which was supposed to be used for only two circumstances, either uh, for genuine emergencies like Hurricane Katrina, where the objective is to get money fast um, to a place so you don't have time to actually scrutinize where the money is going, or for new programs that are enacted uh, during the year by Congress. 
but now five, now six years into the war, we're still requesting money, um, the bulk of it, uh, defense money, you know, through these supplementals. And it is, um, it is very difficult to, to figure out when money uh, is appropriated for things like repairs, you know, where those repairs are happening, whether they're in Kansas or in, in Afghanistan or, or somewhere else. Um, so I, I wanted to, to, you know, hope that all of you will kind of, you know, will try and join the, uh, I think, the consensus in the community of, of budget experts that this sloppiness uh, is a problem that should be tackled. It should not be so difficult to figure out where money is going. Um, now, secondly, in terms of the um, military reset costs themselves, and we were very conservative in the book, you know, taking only sort of a small uh, amount of money for military reset for the Army and the Marines and a small portion of um, uh, replacing aircraft and, and things like that. But I am, I am not sure that I agree with Steve in terms of how, um, uh, how much replacement uh, there is going to be the replacement demands will be for the equipment that's being used up in Iraq. Um, my impression is that in discussing this with many people that many of the repairs that are happening now in the ground in Iraq are kind of short-term repairs. A lot of the repairs are being done because they don't want to, for either cost reasons or logistics reasons, move uh, vehicles and equipment in and out of the country. So they're being done on site by contractors and it's the equivalent of sort of fixing something you're very familiar with here in Washington, fixing a pothole by just filling in the pothole as opposed to repaving the street. So after a while, you can fill in a pothole here and a pothole there and a pothole there, but after a while, the street is really uneven and you eventually have to face the cost that the whole road has got to be repaved. And that is where we have gotten to with much of our equipment and materiel uh, in Iraq, which has been um, over five years sort of patched up um, often, uh, you know, would in many cases probably would not meet uh, rigorous um, safety standards when it comes, uh, if it comes back here, when it comes back here. Um, secondly, on the personnel um, front, uh, you know, the Army is not that big. I mean, we're talking about five or six hundred thousand um, uh, troops who are basically bearing the entire brunt of this effort and who, as I mentioned, many of them have been deployed for a long period of time. Um, so the, the issue of, of um, not only recruitment, but particularly of retention, you know, retention of officers at the captain level uh, is an issue which is, uh, you know, I think underreported. Certainly my students who are sort of West Point graduates and so on at Harvard who have been in Iraq, they are, they are hemorrhaging out of the military if they possibly can. Um, they don't want to go back. Um, be even though they're committed to the mission because uh, they have a family, they have a spouse who's saying, you know, you signed up for this, but I didn't, and that's it. You've been there twice, that's it. Um, and so this issue of how we, what is it going to cost to essentially restore the personnel, um, the, the, the training hours, the officer uh, uh, corps, uh, the, uh, to uh, its pre-war state of strength is one which I think uh, has not received enough attention. A, um, a recent study by the, um, what's it called, the Center for New Security, Michelle Flournoy's um, uh, at, uh, New American Security, New American Security uh, you know, Kurt Campbell and Michelle Flournoy, uh, showed, in which they surveyed 3,000 senior military officers, showed that 80%, 88% uh, 
surveyed said that the military was under an unsustainable strain, and 60% said that our, our military is now weaker than it was five years ago, uh, and many other interesting um, findings in that study. But basically, the investment that we are going to have to make uh, on the personnel side, I think, will take many decades and will prove to be more uh, costly than, uh, more costly probably than, than we've estimated, uh, but that we can even imagine. Steve, do you have any comments? Well, I guess I would just uh, comment on the, um, on the reset issue. I, I mean, I think anec there's anecdotal evidence for all kinds of things. I think the only studies that have been done that have been anything like a uh, uh, solid uh, methodology and have really tried to calculate replacement costs and things like that has, have been the two studies done by CBO, and I think they're pretty, uh, the conclusions are pretty strong. Um, so I guess I would just disagree in terms of the... Uh, uh, the reset, uh, the, the sort of funding requirements for reset. How about the personnel? Linda made a, a, a point that, in fact, because of this war, we've had to raise pay more than we normally have. I mean, is that valid? Uh, well, I think that's certainly true. And, and the, the, I, although that is certainly true, it's obviously hard to measure how much that is true. Uh, a lot of the very expensive uh, costs associated with military personnel, and for, I mean, maybe I should say a word about that uh, initially, is that, you know, People costs are by far the biggest cost right now in the U.S. military, and those costs have gotten much higher uh, since the late 1990s. Probably the average active duty service person today makes about, in terms of overall compensation package, is probably something like 35% more in real terms than they did at the end of the 1990s. Uh, so those costs have really gone up. Now, but a lot of those costs, the most expensive of those costs, have, were uh, instituted prior to the war in Iraq. Uh, prior even to the war in Afghanistan. The TRICARE for Life program, which is a health care program for military retirees, was uh, passed, I think, in, uh, in 2000. The uh, re repeal of the Redux retirement system, which basically gives the military higher pensions now than they otherwise would have had, it was passed in 1999. Uh, some of the other stuff, other, other reforms that really create sort of long-term entitlements for military personnel were also passed, uh, or at least started to be passed, um, uh, before the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So a lot of this stuff predates. A lot of this stuff that has really uh, added up over the years has predates Iraq and Afghanistan. Now, there are additional costs. We, we've probably had higher pay raises than we otherwise would have, um, whether it's a you know, half a percent or a point more, uh, you know, I don't know. But, and, and that can certainly add uh, five or perhaps $10 billion a year to costs over the long term. It's hard, again, to attribute those. It's not entirely clear how to attribute those to military operations versus other things. Um, but, but it has had an impact. And certainly, if one believes that the only reason we're expanding the size of the military today is to be able to fight Iraq and Afghanistan, because there is a plan to increase the size of the active duty uh, Army and Marine Corps by a total of about 95,000 troops, if, that, if you attribute that all to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, which is, is you know, one can do, uh, although I think it's debatable, um, that's another uh, 10 or $12 billion a year over the long term. So there are, certainly are uh, costs within the, um, uh, within the base budget that are that are, um, you know, I think one can attribute to the war. Okay. Well, thank you both for setting the stage. We're now open to questions from the audience. We, uh, our usual custom, we give the media first shot. Anybody from the media have a question that you would like to ask? Going once. Uh, yes, please. Identify yourself, Tony. Uh, uh, Tony Capasio with the Bloomberg News. Your study's been seized on by uh, opponents of the war as a uh, shock and awe of the cost. Can you, uh, for some context, so what does the tree, oh, three trillion? How many years does that encompass? And more importantly, how, what percentage of GNP or GDP projections will that represent 
we're talking about one or two percent or five or six. I just don't know. But it's important for you to lay out the context of what the three three trillion represents in terms of overall GDP. Um, you, know, you get that question a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, Tony, I mean, the three trillion is actually. I mean, we think it's a conservative figure. It's actually very much in line with um, the, you know, with other studies. Um, anyone who has looked at this has has come to a similar conclusion. CBO, uh, including interest, their figure is uh, uh, about let's see, 1.5 to 2 trillion, and that's only going out 10 years because that's how far they go out ever um, for anything. And the Joint Economic Committee. Uh, which included economic costs, um, uh, their figure was 3.5 trillion. Um, you know, our figure, what we have included in our um, estimate was um, we've estimated under two scenarios, a sort of um, best case scenario in which we would essentially have a more rapid uh, drawdown of troops and the remaining troops would be a more uh, sort of Korean-style peacekeeping force, so we would assume much lower costs, much uh, uh, smaller mission, much lower casualty rates, etc. Um, and a uh, moderate scenario, which is uh, a which is a slower drawdown through 2017, um, in which our troops would continue to have a more uh, military mission as opposed to a strictly peacekeeping mission. Now, you know, we look at the lifetime costs of uh, veterans' medical care and disability compensation. Um, and, you know, that, that's obviously a, a major difference between our study and the CBO um, study. Now, it's hard to know exactly when. We know disability compensation, for example, you know, goes up and rises over time, but it's hard to know exactly, you know, how fast people will file for disability, how uh, quickly their disabilities will worsen, how fast they will file for increased disability, you know, and so forth. But, so we can only sort of make a, you know, rough projection. Um, now, in terms of the, does that answer that part of your question? Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, the question of sort of when is this three trillion going to hit? I mean, we're taking the present value of that stream, okay? I mean, it's all in present value terms. So obviously things that are far away, you know, will be, uh, you know, in today's dollars very small because we're looking at it in, you know, today's, uh, you know, in 2007 dollars. Um, in terms of what percentage of GDP the, you know, the war represents, which is, you know, an issue that has, that has come up, um, the, you know, the, the, the question really is how big is GDP and how much of GDP uh, is the government sector taking. Now, GDP compared with the 60s has gone up enormously. The share of GDP that the government um, uh, takes has gone down. Um, so you're not really comparing sort of apples to apples. I mean, so, but I mean, I think your question was more around when, it, when are we going to be feeling the three trillion, right? Yeah. Okay. I mean, it. It's it's hard to be specific on this because of the fact that it requires some assumptions. I mean, you have kind of a picture in that the CBO number of 
one and a half to two trillion goes out just through 2017. So that gives you kind of some feel for it. Uh, most of the disability costs um, go out longer. Most of the reset costs are in the, the you know, 10-year framework. Um, the, interest the interest cost, if you, um, are really the, the, uh, the biggest unknown. Because we know that, you know, if you think about interest on the debt, you can think about it in three ways. I mean, there's the money that we have already paid in interest on what we've already borrowed, which amounts to about $85 billion. There's the money that we still owe on what we have already borrowed. Um, and then there's the money, there's the interest on what we will borrow in the future, you know, which is the biggest unknown. Now, we can sort of estimate you know, several hundred billion for what we have already paid and what we already owe. But if we decided to change the funding mechanism for the war tomorrow, if we decided to fund it through a tax increase in war bonds and belt tightening, then maybe we wouldn't borrow any more money. And so that, you know, and right now, we're not paying off any of our principal at all. We're just, um, as Larry was saying before, you know, we're, we're shuffling from one credit card to another credit card to another credit card. Um, but, you know, if we began to, uh, to, you know, pay off our debt, that, you know, that that would be lower. So that's, you know, so that's where the uncertainty comes in. But okay. I think that, you know, just to, to sum up, I want to make it clear, you know, the purpose of, of writing a book and saying the $3 trillion war was not to put a kind of shock and awe um, price tag on the war. It was just to basically estimate, if you look at this war in terms of the cost that we know about, um, what is it likely to cost in present value terms, using a sort of basic economics tool to say in present value, the money we've spent, the money we still have to spend, what does it look like? And looking at it either from a strictly budgetary perspective or from a strictly economic perspective, you come up to that kind of figure. You could easily go higher if you wanted to, you know, go higher. You know, we were trying to be conservative. Okay, good. Um, good. Please identify yourself. Sure. Um, uh, Gary Mitchell from the Mitchell Report, and um, I want to preface it by saying I, it's not my intention to beat a dead horse, but I, re I would really like to follow on the question <clears throat> about GDP. Um, it, it, uh, it's my understanding from several sources, for example, Bob Hormatz, who's written a, a, a on this issue, that if one puts the, the ratio of uh, cost of war to GDP in perspective, that uh, that the current war, wars, uh, pale in comparison, for example, to World War II, Korea, and Vietnam in that ratio. And so it, my, the question I'm really after is, A, is that your, uh, is, that, is that assessment a correct one? And B, uh, the, the, the second question I, I, I think is, is perhaps unanswerable, but I want to <laughs> frame it anyway, which is, uh, I'm sort of reminded of, you know, 40 years ago, Everett Dirksen saying a billion here, a billion there, pretty soon it adds up. If he came back today, he'd probably say a trillion here, a trillion there. At what, in what way, and uh, using what metrics, um, are we able to put the costs, and I'm talking now just financial, not the social and, and, the, and the other significant costs, in what way are we able to put this in some perspective so that on, on, on some level, we're able to say, as awful as this is, we can afford it. As awful as this is, we can't afford it. Is there, is there anything that can be done in that realm, I think is the question I'm asking. Thanks. 
Okay. Um, okay, I, I will take a stab at this, and I'm also going to ask Larry to, um, to talk about this as well with his um, pers you know, perspective on the um, military budget in the past. Um, first of all, I mean, Bob Hormatz's book, which is, uh, by the way, an excellent book, The Price of Liberty, um, in which he kind of talks about the funding of the wars. I mean, he does try to put these things in context. Um, and, you know, certainly if you look at the, if you look at the percentage of uh, GDP that we spend on defense now compared with the percentage of GDP that we spent on defense um, in, in the 60s, you know, we spend less. We spend 4% on defense now. Now, it's gone up a lot over the last five years, but it's nothing, you know, it's nowhere close to an all-time high. Um, but that has to be set in the context of how much has GDP increased, okay, um, and how much has the government share of GDP increased, which in fact has decreased. So it, it's not a fair comparison because what you're looking at is a, uh, a smaller percentage of GDP, but GDP has increased so much more. You know, so you're looking, you really need to look at the percentage against the percentage of the government share of GDP. Okay, um, so I, I would question the validity of looking at it in that um, in that sense. Um, now, secondly, the um, um, sorry, what was the, the second part of the question again? <laughs> the, 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 what is true? The, 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 I, I think the question was, is there any metric? Is there any way to sort of put this in right. perspective to sort of say, right. awful, but we can afford it, awful, we can't afford it, you know? You know, I think that, that this really goes to the issue of opportunity cost. I mean, we are a wealthy country. And so, in one sense, of course, we can afford it. I mean, if our, uh, if our income levels were to uh, be reduced by 10% and we went back to the standard of living that we had in the 1970s, I mean, we would still be the richest country in the world apart from Switzerland, right? So, I mean, we're a wealthy country and we're not talking about bankrupting the country because of the war. Um, what we are talking about is the fact that we have already spent $600 billion um, on the war, which is an amount of money that could have been devoted to uh, shoring up the Social Security system or providing health care for kids. Um, and you, we have done it at a time when there has been a lot of pressure on other things that we need, you know, particularly infrastructure uh, programs, National Institute of Health funding, you know, and state and city, uh, you know, community aid and so on and so forth. Um, I think that the opportunity cost is even more intense because of the fact that this war, um, unlike some previous wars, because of where the money has gone, has not stimulated the economy. So it has weakened the economy, um, both because of the fact that we've borrowed all this money, we haven't paid for it through taxes, so it's still a debt that's accruing, and because so much of the money has gone sort of in the, into the ground or out of the country um, expenditure, so it has not had a multiplier in the U.S. economy. So, I mean, these things mean that the, the war has been, according to our studies, and, and Alan Sinai has studied this um, extensively as well, you know, has weakened the economy. And of course, you know, we, we would have, considering that this was a war of choice, it would have been better uh, to have spent um, the money on something that would have strengthened the economy. 
Steve, you want to come well, I just back? Want, I, um, I mean, I think it's a, it's a good question what, you know, the percentage of the GDP and all of that, and, and the, so that's a reasonable, things, reasonable thing to ask. I guess I would just sort of um, maybe pile on to what Linda was saying, but, but um, it seems to me you also have to look at it, you know, in the, in the um, there's a value to know what the true costs are, no matter what those costs are. And if you're trying to do cost-benefit analysis, that's, that's what, you, you know, you need to have a full you know, recognition of what the costs are. So I think whatever the level is, it's, it's good to know what the real numbers are. Uh, also, I'd say in the context of, you know, you can, at one extreme, you can compare it to the GDP. At another extreme, uh, you can compare it with what Washington typically debates in here and what are considered major programs and things like that. I mean, the, the prescription drug benefit, I think, was about $400 billion over 10 years. When you're, you know, when you're talking about a war that potentially costs trillions of dollars, you know, in that context, that seems like a, a pretty big number. Um, when you look at the, you know, potential for um, uh, trying to find a fix for the Social Security problem or Medicare, those are things where these kinds of numbers start looking like big and look like you're really making trade-offs. Now, again, I don't know what the right trade-off is, but I think um, you know, these, are, these are big numbers looked at in that context. Now, let me make it. Linda asked me to make a point because I think this is a very critical uh, uh, a question. <clears throat> this was a war of choice. And if you're going to do a war of choice, you have to look at the cost and benefits the, uh, uh, of it. The costs estimated by the administration were you know, anywhere from the head of uh, AID, $1.7 billion, to uh, you know, Wolfowitz, uh, 2.5, to Larry Lindsay, 100 to 200, and then, of course, the Pentagon estimate was 50 billion. So, I mean, that's important because the question is if Americans knew the costs in terms, certainly, of lives and money, would they, would, would they have supported it? The next is this is the first extended war, significant war we fought, where we haven't had a conscription, and we've talked about the extra uh, personnel costs that you've had to pay uh, here because of that. You also haven't raised taxes to pay for it. I mean, people forget Lyndon Johnson in 1969 budget was balanced, okay, at the height of the war in, v in, in Vietnam, because eventually they did put a tax on it. So those are the things I think you have to consider in this. Could we afford it if we wanted to? But remember now, in terms of when I was in the Reagan administration, we had 23% of GDP was coming in. Now it's about 19%. Okay, that's 4%. Now we can get in, you know, the uh, impact on the economy and all that. So yes, you could do that, but there would be other, you know, other, other, other impacts. And I, but I think Steve's point is the key one. You need to know, okay, to make your decision. And what's happened, unfortunately, now we have not known about so many of these things until you've seen the book by Linda and Joe and, and the analysis that Steve has done. All right, uh, John. You're not a member of the working press now, but. Uh. <laughs> well, I'm a recovering journalist, so I'm <laughs> teaching at Columbia. And I, I've, so, many, so many things came out of this. This has been a terrific panel. I really appreciate uh, the chance to hear you. And one of the things that, that Linda said just uh, <clears throat> really uh, <coughs> raised my eyebrows uh, and just made me question the idea that the Pentagon keeps two sets of books about uh, casualties. And I tried to think, well, combat, not combat, why do they keep two sets of books? Why does it matter to them that somebody injured at the end of the convoy uh, was not in combat? Is it just a kind of a body count? They didn't hurt us in combat with that particular one? What, what's the reason they give? Uh, well, the, when, um, when this whole issue first um, came out, uh, 
which was a year ago, and this was January of 2007 when I presented my paper on veterans to the American e Economic Association. And um, it was a exceedingly academic paper really looking at long-term costs of um, providing medical and disability um, benefits. And, you know, in which we had needed to understand what kind of benefits uh, would be available to the full set of those who were essentially who were evacuated, uh, you know, what's the cost of evacuating somebody from theater and bringing them to Langsdall and bringing them back and treating them at Walter Reed and so on. Um, so uh, then um, Assistant Secretary uh, Winkenwender at the Pentagon phoned me and my dean at the Kennedy School to complain about the fact that we had used the larger number. And um, he said, where did you get this number? And I said, well, this is on your website. <laughs> and he said, uh, no, it's not. And I said, well, it, it is, sir. Uh, and he said, well, fax it to me. So I printed off um, his own website with the full number um, and faxed it back to him. Uh, he, he, um, because he was in the Pentagon, he didn't accept emails. He wanted it faxed back to him. So I faxed it um, back to him. And um, then um, the next thing I heard was about two weeks later when the head of the Disabled American Veterans Organization, which represents two million disabled veterans in the country, um, phoned me and he said, have you seen what happened? And I said, no, what happened? He said, they've changed the website. So. Um, First of all, they, they took the second set of books with the larger number and they reorganized the numbers. So before, there was a total. It said total non-mortal casualties, as they were called, which at that time, there was one for Operation uh, Iraqi Freedom and one for Operation Enduring Freedom, so one for Afghanistan, one for Iraq. The total at that time was about, uh, this was you know a year or so ago, you know, 50 Fifty odd thousand, um, and it you know it, it. But they had rearranged and made very convoluted the formatting of the website. So you now have to know that you have to add uh, three different numbers from three different places to get to that because there's no total non-mortal casualty number anymore. Um, anyway, the veterans organizations were apoplectic about this. Um, and it was the subject of four uh, New York Times um, uh, articles, de you know, four days in a row in which they printed the before and after charts and so on and so forth. Um, but, you know, to your question about why they do that, uh, I, I mean, I don't know um, why they do that. But I think the important point is that the taxpayer foots the bill for anyone who is injured um, while they're on active duty. Uh, and um, the second question, as I said before, is to what extent have the non-combat injuries, if you, want to, you know, if you want to track them, have they increased over the number that would happen in peacetime? Because you would have some casualties taken, uh, you know, non-mortal casualties in peacetime anyway. You would have car accidents. You would have people who are, who are uh, you know, coming down with serious illnesses. And in, the, and in this case, for a variety of reasons, they've increased by 60 percent. So. Uh, you know, it really is a significant cost of the war. Well, it just seems like Go ahead, maybe Larry has a thought. 
maybe Larry has a thought about it, or anybody who's been in the military might have a thought. I, I'm having been in the military. I thought, well, maybe it's kind of a macho thing, you know. The enemy didn't really hurt us that much, and somehow we don't want to give anybody the impression that we're taking more casualties, combat casualties, than necessary. What, what do you think about that, Larry? Well, I think it, that's the perception. You want to show that this war has not been as damaging uh, as as is being, being portrayed. One of the early things I was able to find out, I checked the number of people they were evacuating from Iraq and compared it to the casualties, much higher. Well, of course, those were for quote-unquote mental problems, you see, that they, they were not counting. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's an awful lot going on, and I think Steve made a terrific point about the budget. I mean, you, it's almost impossible to find out what's war costs and what's not, uh, not war costs. Okay. Uh, press? Okay, yes. <laughs> Carl Osgood with Executive Intelligence Review. I just want to, you know, pile on to what uh, Larry's, your just comments, because if you hide the costs, the true costs, you can't be held accountable for them. <laughs> and uh, I'd be particularly interested in the implications, you know, if you have comments on the implications of that. I think it's, we ought to ask Linda because she has received a lot of flack from the administration. Uh, as I mentioned, they've gone to general quarters, you know, after her uh, study, study came out. Well, you know, I think it's interesting that um, in the private sector, um, there has been an enormous um, bipartisan move to have greater transparency over um, financial reporting. You know, and after the Enron scandals uh, and so forth, Congress passed almost unanimously the Sarbanes-Oxley law, which is the most fundamental securities reform in half a century. Which uh, And what Sarbanes-Oxley does is it holds uh, the CEO and the board and the CFO personally responsible for uh, uh, the content and the transparency of their numbers in their financial statements. Um, and it, it has a much, much you know, higher level of transparency that's required. Now we don't um, we don't have that in um, in the Pentagon, and you know I have reached the conclusion that we need a a sort of mini Sarbanes Oxley. I would not I would not um, apply criminal liability to those at the top, but but responsibility for the transparency and for cleaning up the financial accounts, because it is so difficult to. Uh, to understand where money is going, that it really, in the words of, of their own um, auditors and inspector generals and David Walker and, and so on, you know, it really interferes with the conduct of operations if you don't know where money is being spent. Um, this is a, you know, it's, it's a really significant problem which, um, you know, I have now seen um, up close over the past three years in, in working on this book. And I think that uh, it's time and it's, it's not a partisan issue, it's a bipartisan good government issue that we should be insisting on transparency um, and, and good accounting. You know, accounting is there for a reason because it allows people to have information. And if you have poor information, you make poor decisions. So in this case, I mean, if we did a cost-benefit analysis and, you know, if somebody offers you a car and they say this car is going to cost you $20,000, you can decide whether or not you can afford it. If you find out that actually the car is really going to cost you $100,000, you might think twice about whether or not you can afford it. Now that's the kind of situation we've had here. They said it was going to cost 
you know, 20 cents. But even apart from that, it's been very difficult to really get to understanding what it's really costing us. And going forward, you know, every time our Congress votes on another emergency supplemental, you know, it's not 70 uh, billion that they're voting for. You know, it's actually twice that or three times that if you count these long-term uh, entitlement benefits. So um, th the purpose of this book is to try and just say what are the real costs so we can actually have the conversation uh, honestly about whether it's worth it or not. Steve, you want to say anything about the Pentagon's lack of ability to know where the money goes? And well, I, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, it has been a real problem over the past, uh, really, you know, going back to 2001. Um, and it, uh, I mean, I, again, I guess I just say I think it is more of, it's not just of academic interest. I mean, if you want to figure out how much you're going to have to spend in the future, you have to sort of understand what your costs are today and what those different costs are going towards. Uh, and, you know, I think initially the first couple of years, at least in the case of Department of Defense, they were relatively good about including stuff in the supplemental that really was pretty much closely related to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, and actual combat operations there. But beginning, especially with the 2007 supplemental, when the um, uh, Pentagon gave the services direction, basically, basically told the services that you no longer have to limit your requests in the supplemental to stuff directly related to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, but can include stuff with a few caveats, can include stuff that's related to winning the broader war on terror in there. Well, the global war on terror to this administration is pretty much the core mission of what the U.S. military does. So you can bring in all kinds of things, which they have done. Uh, and, and again, you know, whatever the merits of those things that they brought into it, uh, from a good budgeting standpoint, you really want to keep those things separate. And, and, and they have not done a good job of that. We've got about five minutes left. What I'd like to ask the people, very quickly with your hands up, ask your question as succinctly as you can, and then I'll let Linda and uh, Steve answer your question and make whatever concluding comments they want. So let's just go right down. Yes. Hi, I'm Jason Campbell with Brookings. Um, I had a quick question on more of the, the uh, perspective of this, of your respective studies, and was wondering if you've, in any of your analyses have done a study or come up with a figure or a range of what we perhaps would have spent had we not engaged in the war in Iraq and or Afghanistan and just for comparative I and mean, we've got the three trillion now and what what the costs would have been reasonably had had this not started okay yes sir right back there yeah. right there the gentleman with the red uh, blazer glad I wore it this morning question. You said the benefits for the World War II disability benefits peaked in 92. 93. So many of them passed away by then. Why, why was that? Okay. okay. Yes. Uh, back there, young lady. Hi, Lisa Lair from Politico. I was wondering how the, you think the war has contributed to the current economic slowdown? Okay. Yes, sir. You, last but not least, this gentleman in the red, uh, right up here. Yes, my name is Injun Martin with Peace Action. Uh, any money that's spent on war should, shouldn't be compared to the GDP because any money that we spend is obscene. And because a billion dollars spent on war is a billion dollars we don't spend on infrastructure in this country and our wealth is based on our infrastructure. Second, the- Okay, uh, now just one question because we're about out of time, okay? <laughs> just one, okay, yeah. let's, uh, let's go. Uh, why don't we start with you, Steve, on this or any other concluding comments that you want to make? Well, I guess the, the only uh, one that I think I could answer there, or at least offer an answer on, is the, in terms of what have we saved by going to war, in terms of um, uh, 
foregone costs, I guess. We were spending about one or two billion dollars a year on uh, Operation Enduring or uh, Operation um, Northern Watch and Southern Watch, sort of helping to contain Iraq prior to the war. Uh, so that's you know five-year costs of that are five to ten billion dollars, I guess, so far that we've saved. Um, there, there may be other costs. That's, uh, but um, I mean that those are the most obvious costs, and and it's not a big cost, I guess. Okay. They, well, I would just say um, th uh, that to the cost of the no-fly zones, I mean, we subtracted from the cost of the war uh, $10 billion a year. Um, so, you know, being conservative, I mean, there were different estimates ranging from sort of 1 to 2 to 12 billion for the cost of containment. Now, I mean, it was not... Um, it was not without some effort, and we were flying 30,000 sorties over the no northern and southern no-fly zone. Um, you know, but we did subtract that. Uh, I mean, so that would be, you know, some, um, you know, more than 50 billion that's, you know, subtracted off our estimate. Um, even though we subtracted it, I mean, the issue is that that savings doesn't seem to have shown up in the defense uh, budget. But, you know, at least in theory, you would be um, setting it against that. Um, the second question, sure. 1993, um, the issue with the veterans. If, if you simply look at the, uh, the annual payments um, in disability compensation by the VA, uh, this is VA only, not counting Social Security, but the VA payments to veterans uh, from World War II, uh, and, you know, they go up um, every year for a number of reasons. You have more people who apply. People get worse, you know, they have more conditions for, that are presumptive for benefits. Uh, there are cost of living adjustments, there are additional benefits added and so forth. Um, the, the peak year, it went up and up and up and up. In 93 uh, was the peak year for World War II uh, uh, benefits and then it started, it's come down uh, a little bit since 93. But, um, it, it, you know, I just mentioned it to demonstrate and 93 is the peak year um, in real terms. But just to sort of think about how long after a war you're really paying a large amount of disability compensation. Okay, is that clear? Okay, young ladies. And if you, um, if you give me your card, if you would like, um, I can, I can um, send you to the site, to the VA site, to give you the exact figures on that. Um, all of the, the um, stuff in our book is footnoted and is uh, primary sourced. Um, the next question was about um, uh, the, uh, the, how it's uh, contributing to the economic slowdown. Um, and I would say in, uh, in three or four ways, you know, partly as a result of the, the increased price of oil, partly as a result of increasing our deficits uh, and our national debt, which has a long-term uh, and a short-term drag on the economy and the strength um, uh, of, the, of the dollar. Um, thirdly, in terms of the, the uh, weakening of the economy through the, the uh, expenditure switching out of things in the U.S. and into things which do not produce uh, benefits for the U.S. Um, and uh, lastly, you could uh, include the cost of uh, the fact that we have not had enough sort of wiggle room, maneuver room, uh, to finance the stimulus to the economy now that we are going into a recession. You know, if you go into a recession when you have a surplus, um, you can spend more to try and get yourselves out of the recession. But if you go into a recession when you already are 400 
uh, billion dollars in deficit and with an additional trillion dollars on the debt, uh, you know, that's a different situation. Now, if you just compare the fact that the stimulus package that was first passed, you know, spends six hundred dollars uh, per person basically per taxpayer you know in sort of economic stimulus compared with the fact that we've spent twenty one thousand dollars per Iraqi in the war to date you know just in cash cost you kind of get a sense of the the opportunity cost that we've lost in terms of what you know we can do to stimulate the economy here uh, the last the final thing I think we've covered that all the other things that we, 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 <coughs> we could have done Let, uh, I I want to thank uh, Linda and Steve for, I think, a terrific discussion. They've raised a lot of questions, so please join me in uh, thanking them. And thank you all for coming. We appreciate it very much.